How much is several? What is a few? If you were to put a numerical value on probably, would it be more or less than likely? To your podcaster's great consternation, the linguistic gatekeepers of Middle English appear to have been rather disinterested about it all. And so, people are constantly late or early. I thought we would meet in a few hours. No, it was several. All right. Women seem to revel in these nuances, arriving for a date with this podcaster when it pleases them, and then claiming etymological immunity. Which brings us to the word transitory. Admittedly, there is some lexicographic nuance, momentary, transient, impermanent, temporal. However, the Federal Reserve, like the proverbial camel, stuck its thesaurus nose into that nuance and charged into the economic tent of the past decade. Why did the 2009 Green Shoots recovery fail? Transitory European sovereign debt crisis, gummed Bernanke. Why did the economy swoon in the first quarter of 2014? Transitory polar vortex, chomped Yellen. Why did inflation not accelerate despite full employment? Transitory cellular data plan price war, gnawed the FOMC. Why was globally synchronized growth tripped up? Transitory political trade wars, Chad Powell. So here we are, 10 transitory filled years later. Now, unless there are glaciers listening to this podcast, and it does need all the ratings assistance it can get, it's likely the audience is in unanimous agreement that the definition of transitory has been tortured to death. Indeed, the Federal Reserve agrees, and transitory has been retired or cremated. Still, instinct informs your podcaster that much like our zombie economy, the excuse is undead, and transitory will walk again. Hello everyone, welcome to today's show. Today we're going to look at how the economy may be inflecting towards the downside, and we're going to dig in to some unemployment numbers. We're gonna look at the oil market. We're gonna travel all the way to Japan and we're gonna get the dictionary out and we're gonna look up some definitions. All of this is of course to help you understand how the economy is working, malfunctioning, how it might be affecting your finances, your politics, our society. My name is Emil Kalinowski. This is Making Sense. I'm joined by Jeff Snyder, the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Good morning, Emil. It's hard to believe here we are in September. And September is always a, a very interesting month, isn't it? The One of the top trending questions and topics in our YouTube comments section and our Twitter feeds is the famed bottleneck. Is it going to happen? If it, How will we know it's going to happen? And I think you're I don't hear about it anywhere else, so I think you should take credit for that. You've been writing about it for years. I remember this appearing in your 2014, 2015 articles, and we're going to raise it again for the first time in many, many months, at least since April, I believe. You haven't written about it, so it's coming up. But first, we're going to look at the unemployment rate. We're going to do it via your article that you posted at the Alhambra Investments uh, blog roll. And it is called, you posted on September 4th, so a week ago. Here's the, here's the title. Unfortunately, like old times, back to being the star of the payroll show. What are the general themes of this article, Jeff? Well, obviously, the payroll show is the BLS's main uh, monthly payroll reports where we get, we get the establishment surveyed, supposedly telling you how many jobs the economy added, and of course, the, the you know the star of the show, especially last year and the year before, had been the unemployment rate because it tumbled to fifty-year low, and many people took that as a sign that not only was the economy in good shape, it was in really, really, really good shape. And of course, you know the unemployment rate took a back seat for the events in March and subsequent months after that. But uh, over the last couple of months, the unemployment rate, which never did really get as high as people had feared for various reasons. Now has tumbled back under 10% again and took a big tumble in the month of August. So everybody was talking about the unemployment rate. It is, some, is again, hopefully the uh, 
in their minds, hopefully the, the, the real accurate picture of what the economy is actually doing at this time. Now, people might get confused because the Bureau of Labor Statistics reports several different unemployment measures, and there are two surveys they conduct. There's the Current Employment Statistics Survey, also known as the Payroll Survey, also known as the Establishment Survey. So there are three names for it. That's part of the confusion. And then there's the Current Population Survey, also known as the Household Survey. Geez, um, let's start with the establishment survey. Tell us a little bit about the inflection in this survey that we're seeing from reopening boom to kind of, hmm. Well, first, I mean, look, what the BLS is doing is trying to get a measure of the employment market from both sides. The establishment survey of the CES, it's exactly what the name says. They survey establishments. They survey employers and say, how many workers do you have on your payroll? So that's why we call it the payroll report. On the other side, the household survey, they're surveying people and people in households and saying, how many people in your household are working? So we're trying to get the, uh, the uh, a sense of the labor market from both employers and from workers and try to match up the two. And what people may not know is, while everybody pays attention to the establishment survey, because it's a bigger survey, it's, it has more uh, it has a much bigger population, much bigger survey panel within it, and it's more heavily statistically, you know, um, you know, there's a lot more that goes into the calculation. It's smoothed out and all these other things. It's made to be the star of the show. The unemployment rate is actually drawn from the household survey. And the household survey in the month of August showed a massive gain in, in the number of households reporting the number of workers in each household. I think it was three, some, three point something million, uh, which was far and away better than expected. Because about a million people joined the labor force, the, the impact on the unemployment rate was a 1.8 point drop well down into the below 9% now. I mean, so it, it really looks like things are improving very quickly, despite what, it, you know, the, the establishment survey kind of disappointed, but the household survey really pushed the unemployment rate down. Right, exactly. So that was the point I was trying to get to is that the household survey inflected in the positive direction, while the established one, establishment is sort of inflecting over like it's losing momentum. So we need a, a tiebreaker. And you provided one in your article from the ADP report. So that's automatic data processing for our foreign viewers. This is a American human resources software company. And perhaps the product they're best known for, they've been around for 70 years, is to do payroll reports. And Jeff, for me, this sounds like the real stuff, right? You're actually getting data from the real economy from real payrolls. And so what is the ADP report? Which one is it corroborating? Which inflection? ADP will tell you that they cover about 80% of the economy. So they, and it's not just, it's, it's the private economy. It's the private sector, which is what we really want. We don't, you know, the, the, some of the BLS payroll reports include government workers. Um, for example, in the establishment survey in August, there was a huge number of census, you know, temporary census workers that, that temporarily boosted the establishment survey. But, you know, we're, we're really looking at what's going on in the real economy, in the private economy. So ADP's numbers has about 80, you know, covers about 80% of the private economy. And the establishment survey also has a separate measure for just the number of private workers. Now, that number was even lower, obviously. I think it was just, just around a million. Well, as the ADP number was basically the same as the establishment survey's private number. And what both of those have shown is since the month of June, so starting in July, the level of rebound, the level of, I don't want to, I don't even think we call it growth at this point, but the, 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 uh, the rebound, the momentum, whatever you want to call it, seems to have taken a different tone since, uh, since June. So starting in July, it looks like the rate of rehiring slowed down materially. Now we have both of these surveys saying in the private economy that that seems to be the case. Something happened in July that may have impacted the, the rate of rebound and reopening or whatever that lingered into August. And audience, that's going to be a big theme. So pay attention. Something did happen in July. We're going to keep raising that point over and over. And Jeff, I'm just going to jump out of this article to an article that you wrote called Even More, suggesting something did happen in July. If anyone wants to read it, it was posted on September 9th at Alhambra Investments. And in that one, you bring in yet another measure 
of employment. This one again from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. It's the job openings and labor turnover survey. Which are they confirming what the ADP and the establish and the uh, establishment survey are saying? The JOLT survey, which is the common name for it, what they're really trying to do is get into the the details behind the major payroll reports and look at, as as the name says, look at the turnover rates. Look at, you know, what is job openings really telling us about labor demand, for example? What are, what, how many, how many um, postings online are companies putting up in the internet to, to see, you know, to advertise for, you know, uh, uh, positions and unfilled jobs and all sorts of things like that. So, the JOLT survey is is linked in some respects to the current employment situation surveys, but it's also separate in that it looks at a different parts of the, of, of the labor market from a different angle. And one of those angles is the, the rate of hiring. You know, there's always turnover in the labor market. In the best labor markets and in the worst labor markets, there's always people who are, who are quitting their jobs and saying, you know, screw it, I'm going someplace else. There's always companies that are saying, you know, we got to lay people off or we got to let people go. There's always turnover in the labor market. And so, what can we judge from that turnover that might tell us something about, especially momentum in the actual labor market as it is? And what the JOLT survey showed for July, because it's, it's one month further in the rears than the other surveys, what it showed for July in the uh, hires category was that the rate of hires, which had been you know, extremely good in, in May and June as the economy was reopening, obviously you would expect that companies were rehiring millions upon millions of workers. But then all of a sudden in July, the level of hiring activity uh, cooled off considerably. In fact, the level was bound down to where it was, uh, in July to where it was less than it had been in the previous July, which wasn't exactly a great month for the labor market. So you have to ask yourself, you know, why would companies scale back in hiring when we have still such an enormous uh, jobs deficit left over from what happened earlier in the year? And that's that, you know, put that together with the ADP survey, the, the establishment survey's private number, you start to think, okay, something may really have happened in July that really did cool off the labor market to such an extent that it's showing up in multiple places. Okay, so we've got a few economic data points that are saying we don't quite believe the enthusiasm of this great rate of change in the unemployment rate. But now I'm going to go back to the other side and I'm going to pull up a graph from your article that we're discussing. It's going to show three lines that are descending and it's unemployment insurance claims. So let's talk about that graph, which seems to suggest that things are improving. I'm going to pull it up now and you tell the audience what those three lines are. And then more importantly, what is not included in those three lines? Yeah, we're really getting back into the major problems with the unemployment rate that we've been discussing for more than a decade, the participation problem, all the, all the things that all the workers really, former workers, that don't go into the unemployment rate. So, you know, if the unemployment rate is a comprehensive view of the economy, then okay, it's probably an accurate measure. But if it leaves out too many people, then it's only giving you a, a piece of the, it's only giving you, um, you know, a picture of what's going on in one small slice or even a large slice, but not enough of a slice of the real economy. So what we've put together here is the BLS's, BLS has a, a specific number, a specific measure of the number of unemployed workers that fall within their bureaucratic definitions of what counts as unemployment. And as you can see, I mean, for this year at least, the level of unemployed, those, those the BLS has designated as unemployed in, in the United States, basically conforms to what we see in other kinds of things, like you know, unemployment claims which is it's data that's tracked by a different part of the government, still the Department of Labor, but yet it's the number of claims paid out by each state's uh, unemployment insurance programs. And, and, you know, there's consistency there, both seasonally adjusted and unadjusted. So it looks like, okay, the level of the number of unemployed, which is drawn from the household survey, the numerator in the unemployment rate seems to be pretty solid. And therefore we have, you know, maybe some, some consistency in what the rate is essentially telling us. And now, what we're going to look at an, at the next graph, and that graph is showing something that is going to upset that entire apple cart. And so tell Jeff, Jeff, tell the audience what you've added here. Well, ever since uh, the CARES Act was passed back in late March, 
we now have a completely separate category of unemployment claims. And these, by the way, these pandemic unemployment assistance and pandemic emergency unemployment claims uh, programs are f are run by the federal government. They're not paid by the state. You know, in other words, in not, not only that, you have to be ineligible for regular state claims in order to go on the federal claims. So these are not double counted. These are on top of the regular unemployment under unemployment claims. Um, some of it's based on you know our gig workers who may not qualify for a regular state job and therefore call be eligible for a state claim. Some of it is um, self-employed workers, uh, self-employed people who have lost hours or lost business and therefore have no other place to turn to. So there's any number of reasons for why you're not on a regular state claim, but you have gone on a federal claim. What we see since, uh, obviously, since the CARES Act was passed is that millions upon millions of Americans have, have filed for eligibility, have been accepted into these programs, and are being paid by the federal government as opposed to the state government on top of the regular state claims which have gone into the unemployment rate. So what we're seeing in the blue line and in the uh, dotted blue line below it, and even to some extent the orange line, is some degree of labor market dysfunction that doesn't show up in the regular channels. It's, it's, you know, it's self-employed workers, gig economy, whatever it, whatever it is, these are workers who are filing at the federal level and saying, look, and I'm, I've been harmed by this economy since March but they're obviously not falling into the major categories or the major definitions and statistics. So the regular categories trending downward, maybe, maybe they're at a too high a level. Of course they are, but at least they're all going down. So maybe in a year we might be back to normal. You add in this unusual special category. If you add them together, and now I'm going to pull up the graph, what we see is that since about this summer, We've leveled off. We've hit a plateau. And the, what I don't see in here is a reopening boom, at least in these statistics. People with income hardship never experienced a reopening boom. And it's, you know, it's almost weird because it almost, it almost looks like people are rolling off of the state programs, exhausting their eligibility or whatever, and onto the federal programs. I don't think that's exactly what's happening, but that's exactly how it looks. It looks like for every worker that goes off of a state program, there is another worker that goes on to the federal program, which is not progress. Even if they're different workers, it's still you know a high degree of harm in the labor economy, a high degree of, of dysfunction in the overall economy, where that the total number of all claims since around you know early May when reopening happened has been relatively constant, which is not what you would expect given what you just said, Emil, which was, you know, hey, there's this reopening frenzy, this reopening boom. We have a lot of statistics that say that. But when we look at, if we're just, if we're just really interested in you know, this potential hidden labor market harm or dysfunction, however you want to call it, it looks like there hasn't been as much progress as we would expect. It looks like there's been no progress. We've been stuck since early May at around 30 million people reporting income hardship of some sort. Jeff, just to wrap up this, this, uh, this article, we've talked about it before in previous episodes, but for any new members of our audience, can you talk about how you ended this article where you talk about that there are two different labor pools and how they're melding together and it's hard to kind of separate them, but what are we witnessing in these numbers? Yeah, I think what we're starting to see is that those two labor pools differentiating each other. There was always going to be a problem with that anyway. And what those two labor pools are is essentially, you know, there was millions upon millions of workers who were simply prevented from going to work by shutdowns, by quarantine, whatever, you, want, you know, whatever it was, restrictions from the government said you couldn't go to the office or you couldn't, you know, we had to close the local bar and therefore all the staff was laid off because the bar was closed. And then there's this other pool of workers who, may have been in that category originally, but as reopening takes place, they find they have no work to go back to. So those in the first pool, those who are lucky enough to stay in the first pool, we would expect those people to all go back to work as the re reopening happens, as the shutdown restrictions are lifted. However, we don't know the size of the second pool because how would we? I mean, there's no statistics that differentiates these, these different parts of the labor market. And so what we're really interested in the second labor pool is you know, how much economic damage did we really take by shutting everything down such that the this, this second labor pool continues to be a second labor pool, continues to be out of work 
for a prolonged period. And that's kind of the message we're getting from the pandemic, the federal claims, which suggests that the second labor pool is substantial and that it's not improving. And, and one of the things we're going to continue to talk about is something seems to have happened in July that may have actually worsened the situation. All right, then. Well, let's segue into our next series of topics that will come back to the idea of July and worsening the situation. But we're going to talk about the middle of September. For new members of our audience, you may think, what? Who cares? But for regular listeners, you have been waiting all summer for the middle of September. And Jeff, just give uh, people an explanation of what is this bottleneck? And for anyone who wants to read this article, it's called uh, COT Black Closing In on Mid-September. What about oil? And you posted it on the 8th of September. Jeff, collateral bottlenecks, why do we care about September? Well, there's historic, I mean, from very early uh, in the U.S. history, economic history, there have been seasonal flows, big seasonal flows. In fact, one of the first tasks of the Federal Reserve when it was first uh, showed when it first showed up in 1913 was to manage those seasonal flows. You have massive flows of money out of the economy. You had you know goods that 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 seemed to uh, exhibit very seasonal behavior, and because of that, money also exhibited very seasonal behavior. I mean, you just think about the Christmas shopping holiday, for example. That's that that was always a big part of the calendar, and so the Federal Reserve even. It's one of its earliest job was to make sure there was enough currency and flowing through the system as people were spending money on goods or on goods and gifts for Christmas. So there's always these seasonal quirks that exist in the in the in the, uh, in the uh, uh, monetary calendar. Except you know they may have undergone some you know modern updates and things, but for whatever reasons there are there is these seasonal low points where liquidity becomes tight. One of them happens to be the middle of September, which is, you know, two weeks before the end of the third quarter each year. I'm going to pull up a graph now because just this week, uh, the St. Louis Fed sent out a scanned copy of a commissioner report from the beginning of the last century that shows those flows exactly. Let me pull it up here. Can you, can you see those, Jeff? So what we're looking at yeah. is from the National Monetary Commission, New York Clearinghouse Bank's monthly movements of cash to and from the interior of the country. And so we're looking at pie charts, but the pie charts are broken up. They're not, in, they're not an even pie chart. And what we see is that the brown pieces are money moving into New York, while the kind of the dark brown pieces or the black color means moving, money moving out of New York and into the interior of the country. And Jeff, I, I, I know you're not going to be surprised, but September shows up even back, you know, a century ago before the Fed came into being. Yeah, that makes sense, right? Because that's the harvest season. And so the interior of the country grows a lot of, of grain and products and agricultural uh, products. And those, that, that, those uh, goods get shipped to market. And then therefore, you know, payments have to go into the interior to pay for all those goods going into the market, especially to New York, where because, you know, a lot of the agricultural products, and not just ag but industrial products too, end up heading overseas. And so you have a global payments issue in dollars that goes along with this interior flow of money to New York, outside of New York, as well as Chicago to a certain extent too. And just people have a hard time believing that that sort of seasonality can still exist. I guess people assume that we've broken free of the seasons, that we're so modern, that we're not connected to it. But it's always there. It's always part of nature. And we can see it. We've got evidence of it. You've been writing about it for years. But in this article, you look at it through the lens of oil. So let's, let's look at that. What are you seeing in the supply and price of U.S. domestic oil production? Well, for one thing, oil production has been severely curtailed, which, I mean, makes sense because we shut down the economy. There's less economic activity. People aren't driving around. There's less use for oil. So there's less demand for oil. So you would expect supply to uh, eventually adjust to where demand is. And so that's happened. Whether you look at the uh, US EIA's numbers or the uh, Federal Reserve's industrial production figures, what you've seen is about a 20 to 25% decline or, or reduction in US supply of crude oil. 
And it's not just the United States either. Let's, let's you know, uh, globally, the supply of, of, of crude oil has been severely curtailed, again, for the same reason. So all around the world, there is much less oil flowing into um, store, flowing, you know, flowing out of the ground and into the economy. And therefore, we would expect, I suppose, prices to increase because there's less supply. But you look, you see that that's not happening. And you also look at it from the point of view of contango and aquadation. So, Jeff, how long has the oil market been in contango? Well, that's, I think, the big message here is, number one, I mean, first of all, as supply has been curtailed, why are prices dropping again as we move into the middle of, toward the middle of September? Oil prices are down sharply, even as, you know, Hurricane Laura came through the Gulf of Mexico at the end of last month and shut even more you know, domestic supply down. So we would, I mean, if supply is down so much and then got dropped another five or 6% on top of it, why aren't oil prices at least, you know, solid firm or going higher instead Oil prices are dropping. So, you know, already we're starting to think, you know, 25%, those, those are historic levels of oil production cuts. And yet oil never really got that much farther than lower 40s. And now it's into the mid 30s again. So that's one thing. The more, I think the more important part of it is contango, which contango, for those that are not familiar, we talked about this before on this podcast, going back to the negative oil price back in, you know, back in April, whenever that was. Um, a contango in the futures curve is, you know, we're not supposed to see contango in the oil futures curve because that incentivizes storage rather than use. Uh, it reduces the roll yield and, and makes it more of a, a, a economic profit to put, put oil, to find storage, pay for it, and, and, and put oil away for the future, increasing inventory. You wouldn't expect that kind of a situation to arise again where we've had 20, 25% of oil supply just disappeared, just taken offline. Why are we still incentivizing money or why are we still incentivizing physical crew to go into storage at these low oil prices? And the fact is that the futures curve, despite this, this constant curtailment of production, never left contango. It stayed in contango the whole way. And as we, we started to get into before, in the middle of July, that contango started to steepen out again, which was a warning sign that, hey, Something's going on here, in the, at least in the oil futures market, where we're incentivizing even more oil. As less oil is flowing, more of that oil needs to go into storage again. So there's, you know, we're starting to get a sense of the, the fingers being pointed at the demand side of the economy, at least the demand side for oil, that even though we're cutting back all of this production, the demand is maybe not coming back up as fast as we would like to adjust to it. And there were incentivizing more oil to go in storage because the demand just isn't there. Demand, even though production is down so much, demand hasn't come back enough to meet, to rebalance the market, to bring the, the futures curve back into backwardation. And it's wild because if supply is down roughly by 25%, then how much further must demand be down? What about inventory for crude oil and gasoline stocks? Is that corroborating what you're seeing in the futures market. Yeah, that's another alarming thing. So we've had, you know, a, a fifth to a quarter of production taken off the market, yet oil inventories have remained at historic highs for this time of year. So that's another sign that, look, we're not using as much oil as we want. There, even though we've cut production back, it needs to cut back even some more. The futures curve is looking at the situation, not just today, but, but looking at, as the futures, the name futures implies, looking at the future situation saying, even more oil needs going to be going to need to go back in storage, even as we're still cutting supply. So again, it's it all adds up to this demand imbalance or persisting demand imbalance that looks to be something that's going to linger on over at least the next several months and into maybe into next year. And what that says is that the economy is not coming back at the rate at least the oil market needs to rebalance a much lower level of supply. And then how does it all tie into the idea of this bottleneck at, in the middle of September or towards the end of September? What is, why does the oil market stand out to you as uh, signaling something might not be as great as the unemployment rate, perhaps? Well, the high-level answer is just simple risk aversion, right? Because if you know that there's a liquidity problem facing you, and everybody knows that there's a September bottle, everybody inside the markets knows that you know money dealers know that this September low point exists, 
And so if you're starting to get more, if you're starting to see more warning signs and become more risk averse, you're obviously going to do, you're going to act as if uh, you're becoming more risk averse, which is sell risky, risky assets. You're going to sell whatever you can. You, if you're a money dealer, you're going to extend less credit. You're going to extend less money than you normally would because you're seeing all of these signs that say, you, know, you don't want to be exposed at this seasonal low point. And so we're starting to see, you know, little nibbles and dabbles of those kinds of behaviors in an important market like oil, which suggests that there's 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 more angst and uncertainty than you would we would uh, you know, ideally like to see. And so you you start listing at the end of your article, you start listing some of the markets you're going to keep, be keeping an eye on to see if this risk aversion is breaking out across commodities, capital markets, and uh, currency markets. And you, you say that the stock market seems to be have sort of worried lately. Uh, the T-bill market is something you're going to be keeping an eye on, as well as certain dollar crosses before you feel like there's something really taking place. And uh, one of those dollar crosses is the Japanese yen. So let's segue to another article of yours. It's called Bottleneck in Japanese. You wrote it also on September 8th. It's at Alhambra Investments. Uh, how does the yen tie into our bottleneck oil story? Well, first, you know, let's, our bottleneck story to begin with is a difficult one because I'm not really sure that you can tell that it's going to be a problem in advance. So we can kind of see that there's some angst, there's some uncertainty, there's some weird things going on. We could try to make a, 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 you know, what we hope is a reasonable judgment about what's going forward. But historically, these things, they just happen. I mean, there's a seasonal low point. We can't really, we can't look inside the dealer system. We can't look at the euro dollar and say, you know, what is really going on at any, you know, intraday? What's going on today? And how will that impact tomorrow? We can't really see those kinds of things. So we just kind of have to be on edge about this bottleneck. We know it exists. We see some, we see some weird things happening in front of it. But we can't really, I mean, there's no signal that says, oh, this is bad. This is going to be, you know, September 2008. This is going to be, you know, repo September 2019 or whatever. There's it, really no clear way to say, to say this is going to be a bad bottleneck. Um, so that's, that's, that's where we start. But to add to the, you know, the levels of uncertainty, the things that we don't want to see going into a bottleneck is the Japanese yen. And I think most people might be surprised that, if you look at the charts for the Japanese yen, the yen has been rising ever since March and April, which is not what we would want to see or not what we would expect to see if Jay Powell and his flood of liquidity, his flood of dollars, had actually been a flood of liquidity and a flood of dollars. Now, the, yen is, the yen isn't isn't screaming higher. It isn't moving higher. You know, it's, it's, there's nothing that, that says this is a disorderly thing, but it's moving in the wrong direction. For from which we would expect this, you know, positive liquidity, uh, you know, highly, highly functioned uh, market that, that we keep hearing about this inflationary, reflationary trend that's supposedly taking place. Instead, the, the you know the near constant grind higher in the yen is very much like the oil curve staying in contango. So this, you know, for the last six months, when things are supposed to be improving, here we have two very important, very key warning signs that say, you know, maybe not. Maybe things are not progressing the way we, we want them to progress. And of course, as, as I've circled here, we also see a bump in July. So, some, you know, again, something may have happened in July that not only hit the, the oil contango curve, the, the contango part of the oil curve, but it also showed up in Japanese yen, too, again, in the concerning bucket. And uh, so, yes, right now we're looking at a graph that shows the Japanese yen and U.S. dollar since January of this year, 2020. But if you go back in time, the yen started rising against the dollar or at least stopped falling, I would say October 2018, which is no coincidence. If I remember correctly, that's when gold started to rise as well. There was a big economic dislocation. So the, uh, in case we haven't mentioned it already, a rising yen is a little bit like a rising dollar because the euro dollar system, Tokyo, is a major hub of that whole spoke system. And uh, what happens in the it's, – it's just like the rising dollar. You don't want to see a rising yen. It signals disorder. You want to see the yen falling because it's being multiplied and lent out and re-lent out. Look, Japanese yen, it isn't quite the, what it used to be, but you know, we can, that's, that's a separate topic. 
but it is still one of the key indications for what's going on in the global dollar system. And as you were just saying, it is a consistent, it's a consistent, it provides us with a consistent view. It, it's, it's, it's one of those reliable signals that tells us, okay, things are turning one way or the other. And if Jay Powell had been successful at all with all of the stuff that he has done, you know, this idea of flooding the world with dollars, I don't believe we would see the yen behaving this way. And again, it's backed up by the oil curve and the bond curve and gold and all sorts of other things. So we have a consistent picture that is saying not inflation, not enough economic improvement because the markets are acting this way, which is the illiquid way, which is the bad way. And now we here we are one week short of the middle or you know, only a couple of days short of the middle of September. And we're thinking, you know, what is this going to look like? And maybe maybe it's nothing. Maybe it's something. But in the bigger picture sense, we're not heading into September with with much that's going right. I know what I was going to ask you here. You just like how you ended your uh, oil article, you give a list of things that you're going to be keeping an eye on, and you just gave it right now. But one of them in your article that I didn't know what it was, you said JPY and T bills, okay, and the repo twins. What are the repo twins that you're going to be looking for to <laughs> those see? Those are the repo twins. <laughs> okay, those. I must are have worded kind of... it badly. No, it's it's JPY. Uh, the way that the Japanese banks procure dollars is essentially to mimic offshore repo trades. So you know, in one sense, the Japanese yen is an, is a repo indication, as obviously are T bill yields, and that's one thing that hasn't been a, a very much of a concern. I think we need to point that out too: is that the T bill yields have actually risen a little bit here. They're up a couple basis points from where they were last month. So we're not really seeing a massive collateral strain in that sense. So, you know, JPY, oil, big picture sense, the economy is not recovering. But you're not quite yet seeing that show up on collateral and repo and, you know, oversized demand for T-bills. And I think, you know, it's important also to point out that credit spreads, uh, risky credit corporate spreads, haven't really improved either. And that inflection took place, or at least they stopped um, improving. They stopped coming down. Spreads did. Right in the same week as unemployment claims jumped, the same week that Contango showed up in the uh, oil curve, and then the same day that JPY, I circled on the JPY chart. So we're seeing in credit spreads the idea, at least the general idea, that things are not improving. Something happened in the middle of July where the, maybe the momentum of re- reopening, the re- momentum of the economic rebound got knocked off stride for whatever reason. Whatever it was, something happened in the middle of July, and over the last couple of months, it's starting to, it's starting to be, you know, leak out and become you know, risk-averse behavior. Maybe we're not seeing in the U.S. Treasury market, but coming across my news desk this morning was that the U.K. six-month gilt securities were sold negative for the first time with a negative yield, as well as New Zealand's five-year bond is now at two, trading at two basis points above zero. So maybe in other markets we're seeing it. Let us move on to our last article, and it's posted today at Real Clear Markets. It's an essay, and it is called A Deflationary Mindset That Isn't in Our Minds. So, Jeff, I went to Merriam-Webster to look up the definition of the word transitory. Here's what they say. Of brief duration, tending to pass away. Not trusting Merriam-Webster, I went to dictionary.com. What do they say? Not lasting, not enduring, not permanent or eternal. Lasting only a short time, brief, short-lived, temporary. I'm not saying we're reliving uh, 1984 here with uh, Orwell, but one of our government agencies, pseudo-government agencies, has sort of taken liberty with the definitions of a, of a word, transitory specifically, and that's what you address in this article. Tell us all about it. Well, transitory was always the word that the Federal Reserve officials would trot out whenever inevitably their, the inflation numbers undershot their target. What they were saying essentially was that, okay, there's a bunch of unrelated transitory factors. And once those factors, because they're transitory, therefore short run in nature, once they dissipated on their own, uh, inflation would, would immediately come back up to target, which would then fulfill every monetary policy promise, which because a rising inflation rate at or above 2% would essentially signal full employment. And full employment 
for the central bank is their guiding North Star. That was the way in which we determine whether monetary policy is successful or, in at least their minds, you need more of it. So we're going to be talking about inflation, but as we've talked about before in a different episode, they're not, real, they're, they're not sadists, the Federal Reserve. They're after inflation because inflation is supposed to represent something good. They don't want to inflict inflation on us in the middle of a depression. So what is that something good that inflation is supposed to signify? Yeah, you get the economic growth, like economic acceleration where, you know, because it's economic growth and meaningful economic growth, you don't really notice a modest level of inflation. And the modest level of inflation simply signals that this economic growth is sustainable. It's full employment. It's exactly what we want to see and what we actually used to call an economic boom, a real economic boom. And so the lack of inflation starts to raise questions about, is the economy really growing? Have we really met full employment? Is there still macro slack in the labor market? Macro slack in the labor market means that there are workers who aren't working, who really should be working, who want to work, but maybe they don't tell the BLS that. And so they don't fall in the unemployment rate. They're hidden workers. They're, they're pushed off to the side. And if, they're, if that's actually the case, and that's, that's a very serious economic condition. And it says, essentially, if we bring it back into a monetary policy context, that monetary policy didn't work as designed. If there's any macro slack, especially left over this long of a time, then it said QE didn't work, ZERP was a failure, and all these other things that, you know, if you're a central banker, you probably want to do your best to avoid admitting. What about supply shocks or demand surges? Uh, we've talked about the 1940s and how in the 1940s, inflation surged into double digits. I think it only lasted a year, but that seems like a long time. How can you tell when the good inflation is available or taking place versus those kind of transitory inflation shocks that we should discount? Because I know you get it too, Jeff, but all the time on Twitter and YouTube, there will be comments saying, well, this washing machine is 14% more expensive. How can you say there's no inflation? Well, we have to distinguish between both transitory types of inflation as well as what inflation is supposed to signal, which is broad, sustained consumer price advances. When we talk about broad consumer prices, we're not talking about the specific washing machine or specifically appliances. But if inflation is going up in all categories across all consumer goods and services, and that just hasn't been the case. I know people focus on especially food prices because food prices have been going up and have been going up rapidly, and as, as have the prices for a lot of necessities. But at the same time, a lot of prices are going down. And so when you put those things together, what you're seeing is not a sustained, not broad level of inflationary activity. It's quite the contrary. We're, we're seeing a lack of sustained, broad levels of inflation. It's, it does happen in pockets, and it can happen in transitory bursts, as you point out, but the market is adjusting such that it doesn't, it doesn't continue forward uh, across a long period of time, nor does it happen across the entire goods or services bucket in the consumer, of the consumer experience. So we're not seeing the, the, definition, the, the specific definition of inflation. In fact, we're seeing instead disinflation. And what, what central bankers have been trying to say is that, well, we'll get the inflation. It's coming. Just give it enough time. And then when it doesn't show up, well, there's some transitory factor. You know, in 2014, for example, the oil price crash. Well, that was a transitory factor. In 2017, you know, Janet Yellen talked about, you know, FMC minutes. They talked about Verizon's wireless data plans, for example. So, I mean, they, there was all of these transitory factors, one after another, after another, after another, after another, after another. That, you know, each individual factor may have been transitory, but the, what the more important part was the inflation undershooting was not. It was a very long-term problem, which, you know, getting back to Jackson Hole in 2020, the grand strategy review, the Fed now says, oh, by the way, that they don't say this, they don't come out and say this, but the, what's implicit in the document is, oh, by the way, all that transitory stuff we said, yeah, we were wrong. It wasn't transitory. We're now admitting that there are some, there is something taking place that is keeping inflation below our target. Right, and I think you just mentioned that, that this transitory issue has been a long time coming. And you identify 2012 as being the first time that it entered the Fed's uh, lexicon. And that was Bernanke trying to explain why 
green shoots reflation hadn't translated into a recovery? Well, because of the European sovereign debt crisis, and that's transitory. And then, as you said, we believe it or not, we had something to do with Verizon, the uh, the wireless data cell, cellular uh, plan provider and price wars. But that's not even the most ridiculous one. Jeff, do you remember the polar vortex? The weather was bad, and that was <laughs> kind of right. transitory, and it kind of knocked us off, yeah. off our and track. It, well, that's the thing. I think a lot of it, to me, in a way, it's, it's how ridiculous they had. To, I mean, Verizon, forget, I mean, Verizon, especially the, the, the wireless data thing, in the middle of 2017, why are they talking about wireless data plans when globally synchronized growth and this inflationary takeoff and acceleration was supposed to be happening? It was a very clear warning sign that said, these guys don't know what they're talking about. And now they're saying, oh, yeah, by the way, there was no transitory factor. So, you know, don't don't think about we don't know what we're doing. Just 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 believe that we've got it covered now. We've, we've, we've figured it out. And I want to draw the, dif- the distinction between the attitude of the Federal Reserve reacting to things getting in their way to Harold Macmillan, who was the British Prime Minister from 1957 to uh, 1963. And it might be an apocryphal quote, but apparently a journalist asked him, hey, what's going to knock you off your path? What's going to knock the government off your path, off your policy proposals? And he said, events, my dear boy, events, meaning you know, real life. We live on earth. Things don't go according to plan. We're going to react to them and manage the best we can. Meanwhile, it's a totally different tone and spirit. Meanwhile, the Federal Reserve was saying, yeah, the conditions aren't perfect. So we're going to wait until the conditions are favorable. And Jeff, I don't know how far back you've been studying monetary policy, but I think the last time conditions were favorable and perfect was uh, the Garden of Eden. And ever since then, everything's been going off track and we have to react and overcome. And that's what we're not seeing. We haven't seen for eight years. Well, yeah, transitory. I mean, look, Neil, it's, it's really simple in that respect. Again, what we talked about is meaningful economic growth. If we actually experienced meaningful economic growth, nobody would have cared about those transitory factors. They, they just would have happened and nobody would have noticed, right? I mean, if Verizon had, had cut the, you know, entered the wireless data plan, which is essentially a, a cut to the price of its service, Nobody would have cared. It would have just been absorbed into this otherwise very healthy, very robust trend that would have, you know, that's the whole point of sustained broad-based inflation. It's a, it's a confirmation that the economic growth is happening in a meaningful way. And by the way, most people don't really notice the inflation part aspects of it because they're too busy being successful. And many people, you know, there's not many people left behind in that kind of a, a situation. Whereas if there's a lot of macroeconomic slack left over, we have too many people being left behind. We don't have enough growth. And it leads the Fed to, to, to highlight and pinpoint these ridiculous, you know, transitory explanations one after another, after another, after another. You know, and, and that's, you know, the, the 2014-15 oil crash was another big one, too, where, the, you know, that was supposedly because of a supply glut. You know, there was too much supply, as if the uh, futures market didn't know that the U.S. was was drilling, it, you know, fracking at every place it possibly could. That supply was some kind of big surprise that showed up in the middle of 2014 that, you know, was impossible to anticipate. And that's why oil prices fell. You know, it's, it's these ridiculous, you know, the story always changes from the Fed. They always have to change their story, which is a key indication. They don't know what the hell they're talking about. If you have to always continually change your story because it doesn't line up with evidence and data, then you don't have a story to tell. And why that's important now is because here we are again in the same bucket. We're in the same situation. What is the Fed saying now? We're going to have inflation. We're going to have growth. We're going to have recovery. And if you, you know, like the boy who cried wolf, we have the, the, the central bank that cried recovery way too many times here. And what the markets are saying is we don't believe you anymore. And why should we? You guys never get your story straight. If I remember correctly, the uh, the yen was also rising when the dollar, when the uh, when oil prices were falling that 2014, 15, 16 period, which is what we were just talking about. Yeah, actually, yeah. the yen didn't change until June of 2015. So the yen was actually behaving favorably if you're you know if you were Janet Yellen. But when it shifted in June 2015, it was a, it was a it was, I think it was a very big warning that hey. Things are really getting serious now. And of course, what we saw a couple months later in the Chinese Yuan and then you know disaster in, in, in the rest of the world for the rest for the rest of the year, rather than the acceleration and recovery, again, 
this was not transitory factors. This was the same thing happening over and over again. I'm imagining, did you ever see the movie, uh, The Marathon Man, Jeff? I don't believe with, so. With Dustin Hoffman. Well, there's a scene where uh, there's a mix-up and the uh, Nazis are, are involved and they want to get their uh, diamonds, if I remember correctly. And uh, Dustin Hoffman is strapped to a chair. He has no idea why he's there. And a dentist comes and he just he gets out his little instrument and he starts torturing him and he's saying, is it safe? Is it safe? He won't offer any explanation. Anyways, I'm imagining Bernanke right now. He's got transitory strapped down to the dentist chair and he's torturing that definition, the Federal Reserve. They've been torturing it. And now it's this grotesque transitory seven-year thing. But as you said, they have given up on that definition and they've set it aside. But I, And I like the way you end your article here. You end it kind of ironically saying, that there is a deflationary mindset or a rigid mindset in place, but ironically, it's not with us, the people, but uh, the other way around. Yeah, it's, I think it's been a persistent theme of ours, especially for me, since Jackson Hole, because what's, what they're really saying is that we're not going to change. We still believe monetary policy works. We just can't find any evidence for it. And so we're going to keep changing our story because one of these days, maybe it will be consistent. And that's really the point here is that as, as the world reaches a critical stage, as the markets maybe reach a critical point here in September, we have these central bankers doing the same thing that they always do. We're supposed to believe them that they fixed all these problems. They've even done better than fix it. They've created this too much good stuff. And so that's going to be inflationary. The economy is going to recover. We should just ignore all the bad problems. And we're listening to people who can never get their stories. It's Groundhog Day. Well, Jeff, Good show. Let's do it again next week. You have a good weekend. Thanks, Emil. You too.